Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am Dr. Melek Furat Altai, a musician and a neuroscientist by training. I will be your host today. We will be talking to Professor John Aber about his new book, Less Heat, More Light, a guided tour of weather, climate, and climate change, a straightforward and fact-based exploration of how weather happens, how it relates to climate, and how science answers major questions about Earth as a system. So, John, thank you very much for joining us uh, for this podcast. Um, let's begin with you. Could you tell us about yourself, please? Certainly. So uh, I've been a professor of environmental science for 40 years or so. But my interest in the topic really goes back to the earliest days of my life. I was always interested in weather and climate, which is kind of an odd thing, <clears throat> given that I grew up in Los Angeles, which people might say doesn't have a lot of either weather or climate. But I was always interested in it. The one time it snowed on our house, I went out and collected a snowball and put it in the freezer and kept it there until it evaporated. I didn't know snow could evaporate. Um, and I put a rain gauge in the backyard and ended up catching more spiders than raindrops, probably. But the interest was always there. My parents were supportive. They bought me a subscription to the daily printed weather maps of the U.S. Uh, weather service that arrived three days later in the mail. It's a story I like to share with current students who have, of course, instant weather information available all the time on their phones. So uh, through uh, the agency and the help of, a, of an excellent high school teacher, I ended up at Yale undergraduate, which had no meteorology major, being liberal arts college. Uh, I put together a computer science major that uh, was doing artificial intelligence, even then it was called that, when the first Earth Day happened. And I said, this is what I have to do. I went to my advisor, who was an engineer, but very supportive and set me up the street to what's now the Yale School of the Environment, where I did master's and PhD and ended up uh, beginning a very long and satisfying career studying forest ecosystems in a changing world, including climate. So I got to teach in that subject for many years and was able to 
keep my interest alive and, and keep learning more about the topic. Amazing. And um, how did you come to write this book? Well, another abiding interest in my career was in good science writing, popular science writing. I think it began with the uh, first book by uh, Carl Sagan on uh, Cosmos, which was a brilliant book. And I carried that interest all the way through. I uh, always wanted to have a chance to try to write a popular science book, but a busy career didn't make it possible. Um, and then uh, towards the end, here now, um, and... Uh, well, the interest in climate and weather certainly has only grown over time because this is the hottest topic, the most important topic, of course, and the most important long-term environmental topic, I think, that we all face. So, and there was a realization at one point that there were no good popular science books written about weather. There's tons of books about what we should do about climate change, pro-con, or whatever, but they always, they tend to start with politics and policies, but there wasn't just a basic book that would present the science. And so there was a chance to pursue a long-term interest on a topic of interest, uh, reinforced by a couple of events that ended up uh, happening that we could talk about. But um, And then COVID hit, and there wasn't a lot of other things that could be done. So writing was an option. The place in my career was good. Uh, uh, colleagues were supportive. A couple of big uh, events, including a college reunion, where I had to describe the science of climate change in five minutes. That was sort of enlightening. Uh, all of that led to um, this project. Great. And um, so if you were to give us one or maybe a few sentence uh, pitch of your book, how would you describe it? What is the book about? So I would say that... Um, we know a lot about weather and climate. We know enough to know where we're headed. We've known most of it for a very long time. And the uncertainty in our climate future does not have to do with uncertainties in the science. It has to do with what we're going to do about it. And it's probably a good time to say that there is nothing, there is nothing about what we should do about it in the book. So there is no politics. There's no policies in here. I didn't want to cloud the presentation by taking any kind of advocacy um, point of view or or perspective. So really, this is all just about the science and the hope that the conversation about what we might want to do about climate could be based on a accepted and firm scientific um, foundation. I think it's important to say that I, I feel there are no major uncertainties scientifically about where we're headed. And we can talk about that more later if we want. Less heat, more light. How did you choose this title? Well, that was really interesting. And it was a long process. Uh, I guess we'll talk about Svante Arrhenius in a bit. But uh, my first title for the book was Svante Arrhenius and How Much Did He Know a oh, 100 Years Ago? Because that's really one of the things that was surprising to me when I started to dive into the topic and started to look into the history. I didn't begin by thinking that we knew all that much all that long ago. Um, so I was so impressed with what Arrhenius did in his life in many ways. And there's a whole chapter, whole first chapter of the book is about Arrhenius and his history and how he came to understand climate change and the kind of very rich and um, intellectual environment that he created in a very unusual uh, academic setting in Stockholm in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, so, but that turned out to be a fairly boring title, actually. And, and uh, then uh, 
things like uh, having to present climate science in five minutes made me think and understanding all of the anger and 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 um, and heat, if you like, around the climate issue, it seemed that the true goal of the book was to reduce the temperature around the debate, less heat, and hopefully provide light in terms of here's the science, here's how it works. We know it works. Uh, we've known it for a long time. Right. Uh, so let's just accept okay. that and go on. Okay, I didn't think of that. Uh, that's that's quite uh, enlightening about the title. So uh, you mentioned uh, Arrhenius, and um, uh, you discuss uh, uh, about him uh, quite in depth in your book. Um, could you tell us about um, the how uh, Earth system science came into being as a branch of science? So putting those two together, together is really interesting because I don't think most people would put Svante Arrhenius and Earth System Science together, but I do, and it's a good question for that reason. Um, I think he, so Earth System Science is the study of the Earth as an entire system. So it's biology, chemistry, physics, it's climate, it's weather, <clears throat> it's forest, it's vegetation, it, it's everything and how it all works together. So it's a very complex topic, um, an inclusive topic. I think it started if you like, intellectually or culturally with uh, the blue marble photograph taken by the Apollo astronauts on the way to the moon and um, how that reshaped how we view the Earth. We view the Earth now, uh, and that had a lot to do with it, that one image, as an integrated system. And we realize how thin is the atmosphere in which we live and kind of how fragile a whole system is. So that was part of an impetus to study the whole planet in the most integrated way. And it's been a long process because science is done in silos and in, in disciplines, but putting it all together. So the atmospheric scientists have to talk to the oceanographers, have to talk to the forest ecosystem people. How do they all relate to, let's say, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? You need to know all of it. So it's been building, but Arrhenius had that perspective uh, around 1900, he put together this uh, fascinating group called the uh, Stockholm Physics Society, which included, very unusual for universities at that time, both academics and people from the private sector, <clears throat> people who were starting a meteorology service, people who had been Arctic explorers, and they talked about, you know, important science topics. Um, his perspective and the book that he wrote called Worlds in the Making in 1908 could be seen as the first real statement of um, Earth system science because he considered everything. So I've always appreciated that. And that carried right through Carl Sagan and Cosmos. Uh, anyway, so it's developed out of traditional disciplines, but it's now this overarching science that really brings science from all areas together. And I like to think that Arrhenius got us started on that way, but I think he's underappreciated for what he did, actually. And to follow up on this and to to talk a bit about weather, um, how do we uh, distinguish between weather and climate or how are they linked, in other words? Right. And I, I think that's a really good question. And it's a, a distinction that's important to make scientifically and in presentation as well. So weather is what happens today and tomorrow in the next couple of days. We predict weather with very complicated models that draw on a huge network of um, 
uh, sensing um, from satellites to weather stations to thermometers to rain gauges, you know, and, and it's all fed into a, a, a very large computer system that in a 10 minute time step calculates what the atmosphere should look like in maybe 100,000 different boxes. So hugely complex. Um, and we need that. I mean, we know enough about it. We have enough of measurements to be able to predict weather, you know, for maybe five, seven days out. Climate operates in a very different framework. Climate is a much longer term, maybe years to centuries. And the difference, let's, let's put it this way. For weather, the ocean and the ice, you know, um, the ice masses in Greenland, they don't change. They're boundary conditions. So weather is all about the atmosphere and how it moves and what it's going to do. In terms of climate, the constraints are different. How fast will the ocean temperature change? How fast will the ice melt? So there's a different set of constraints. Um, and the same models that do weather will not ever give us a century-long prediction of climate. It's a different topic with different constraints. Is that okay? Yes. And so, so you said that, uh, and we, of course, we know that uh, we cannot predict weather beyond a few days. But then, how can we better understand climate change? Yeah, I know that's always the conundrum. And if you don't like the notion that we think of, that we know what's happening with the climate system, that's the first argument. Yeah, I can't even predict temperature, you know, five days from now. How can you predict temperature, you know, 50 years from now? And the answer is they respond to different constraints. Um, the reason we can't predict weather more than five, seven, whatever, 10 days uh, is because of a wonderful term. There's a chapter in the book called chaos. And while there are political and emotional you know, meanings for the term chaos, in terms of, of weather, it just means that the system is extremely sensitive to initial conditions. And we can never describe the atmosphere perfectly. And if we can't ever describe the atmosphere perfectly, errors in the models will accumulate over time and the predictions will get less accurate. And there's all kinds of statistics out there. U.S. Weather service is marvelous in terms of actually saying, here's what we can't do very well <laughs> anymore and probably won't ever be able to. They have a lot of data out there about the accuracy of their predictions. <clears throat> and the accuracy declines over time, every day. Um, so, but that's the atmosphere and that's the short-term weather. Um, some One of the leading climate change scientists, John Houghton says, you know, in terms of climate change for decades, the initial state of the atmosphere is irrelevant. What we have is an energy balance on the atmosphere, you know, sunlight coming in, radiation losing heat to space, greenhouse gases are minimizing that loss and increasing the temperature of the atmosphere. How is that going to interact with the oceans and with the ice caps? And those are the long-term constraints on how temperature is going to change and how things like you know, sea level rise are going to happen. They're very long-term consistent things. So different systems, different constraints, different kinds of science needed for the predictions. Um, and I think there's scientific consensus that we can predict pretty well what's going to happen over the next decades in terms of the big, the big picture, in terms of uh, ocean temperature, sea level rise, and ice loss. 
One thing that I found really interesting is how ice could be studied to understand climate change. Could you tell us a little further about this? How ice could be um, examined to, to understand how climate is right. taking the shape? Whole, um, yes, it's a great question. The, the study of the historical record in the ice caps is a fascinating one. And there's a uh, a very memorable book. Well, there's a couple that I really like on the topic. One's called The Two Mile Time Machine by Richard Allen. The other is Thin Ice by Mark Bowen. And they describe exactly how you do that. You build these cores that are possible, that make it possible to drill down through miles of ice. So the two mile time machine, basically that's the Greenland ice cap, which at the time was two miles thick. <clears throat> so you invent these drills that make it possible to go all the way down without melting the core before you get it to the surface and how you preserve the core and what you can read out of the core. But especially in Greenland, where there's so much annual snowfall, you can actually do annual layers of snow accumulation. So then there's things in the snow that tell you what the climate was like back in the day. And it, in particular, it's kind of a complex topic, but it's isotopes of oxygen that are very indicative of temperature. And so you, you get a chart of what the temperature was like at fairly high resolution. And one of the things that came out of the, the Greenland ice cap and the, that Ali talks about is uh, there are times when climate has changed rapidly at that particular place in the earth. So, um, and rapid climate change became a topic in the last couple of decades because of that. How fast can it change and why? Um, so we could go on on that <laughs> as to why, oh, please do. but the whole process, uh, why? Okay. So where do we go? So Greenland may be a particularly sensitive part of the climate system because it receives a tremendous amount of heat, usually from the Gulf Stream. Now, most people are familiar with the Gulf Stream. This is long um, river of tropically warmed water that moves up the east coast of North America and is really what keeps Europe way warmer than it ought to be for, uh, I know you're sitting in Switzerland, right? It should be, <laughs> uh, it should be much colder there than it is, but because the Gulf Stream is huge amounts of tropical warmth there, which is also why becomes rainy. That's why Ireland is so rainy and cloudy, And but it's warm. You know, there's palm trees in Southern Ireland. It's amazing. Um, so, but that's part of a global ocean circulation system that might shut down at some point. If that Gulf Stream was deflected farther south or slowed, um, you would have colder temperatures at the north end, and that's Greenland. So it may be a particularly sensitive part of the climate system. Um, but still, at least for that part, and how strongly that could relate to European climates, um, that could be an important part of the climate system and a part that we need to monitor, which I've said in several places. So, uh, yeah. yeah, so that's that's why Greenland might be most sensitive. But still, the fact that uh, temperatures may change by 10 degrees over the course of a couple of decades, it's worth thinking about. Right. So... Uh, let's talk about carbon dioxide in that case. So okay. <clears throat> a very basic question. Do we know for certain that carbon dioxide levels are rising? And 
do we know for certain that this uh, is based on uh, human activity rather than a natural cyclic event? That is really the key question. Thank you for asking that. Um, we know it because we've measured it. So in terms of uh, the history of climate change, um, I like to go from the discovery of the fact that CO2 was a greenhouse gas or had the right properties. That happened in the 1850s. And then That's it was quite radius. early, actually. <laughs> yes. This is how I started my five-minute presentation on climate change, by shocking people by saying, we've known this for 160 years, 170 <laughs> years. Um, and then there's Fonti Arrhenius, who did what turns out to be a fairly accurate calculation, and a cal not a guess, not a hypothesis. He spent a year doing 100,000 hand calculations to, S to calculate what the effect of a doubling of CO2 would be on global temperatures. He was only off by a degree. He said four degrees, it's closer to three. But we've known that uh, for a long time. And then we get to the CO2 record, which is Charles Keeling and the Mauna Loa record. So in the 1950s, he started uh, a laboratory on the top of a volcano in the Hawaiian Islands to measure accurately carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And the reason he did it there is because um, he wanted to be away from any local influence. Um, it's interesting, they actually had an eruption on Mauna Loa recently, and they had to move the station to the next volcano over. But um, so there's this long term, highly accurate record that's so accurate, you can see the um, fluctuation winter to summer in the carbon dioxide concentration. It is the environmental icon of our time, and everyone should know it, and almost no one does. I the media doesn't like graphs for some reason, <laughs> you know, so, you know, climate discussions of climate change tend to start with greenhouse gases are increasing and here's the prediction. And then what are we going to do about, you know, what should, what is it anyway, we go on from there, but it's in the absence of actually seeing the information, it seems hard to make the point. If you put up the graph that I show has the increase in carbon dioxide but ice cores come into this as well. So how do we know? Like you say, it's the perfect climate change or global change question is, okay, that's happened. Has that happened before? Uh, is that a normal fluctuation that should come down or is it not? So you can measure the carbon dioxide concentration in those ice cores going back 800,000 years. And it's never been above 300 parts per million. It's now 410. Um, so we are outside the normal range for carbon dioxide going back a million years. We might have to go back two to three million years to find carbon dioxide concentrations as they are now. So yes, it's changed. <laughs> and the chemistry of carbon dioxide is not complex. Yes, it dissolves in seawater. And that's helped us by slowing the increase in the atmosphere. Um, but there's no question that carbon dioxide has increased uh, by at least 50% since uh, the 1850s um, and is likely to continue to increase. And you can, the calculations on why it's very clear that it's fossil fuel burning, that's, that's releasing huge amounts. Arrhenius had that in his book in 1908. He said, you know, the combustion of coal is going to increase the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. And he said, and this is a good thing because basically it's cold in Sweden. And if we had more CO2 in the atmosphere, <laughs> it'd be warmer. 
wouldn't that be great? <clears throat> so uh, context, historical context there. But uh, so we've known the process. We know what causes it. There's certainly no question that we've changed carbon dioxide or that carbon dioxide can change climate. And this climate change, how is this going to affect the oceans? Okay. So one of the things that really surprised me and has come very clear from this whole uh, process and is a highlight of chapter 12, which is about the future, is that the oceans and ice have provided a buffer for us. They've provided substantial inertia in the climate system. Um, the oceans have absorbed, some people say, maybe 80% of the actual increase in energy that uh, in the atmosphere has been transferred to the oceans and the oceans have warmed. And that's caused about half of sea level rise because as a, a liquid warms, it expands. Um, ice as well, by uh, holding tremendous amounts of water in Greenland and Antarctica um, and melting only slowly. The last time geologically, that the earth had a CO2 concentration and a global temperature equivalent to where we're headed um, in the next hundred years or so. Uh, there was there was no ice in Antarctica and sea levels were tens of meters higher. The only reason we're not going there is it's going to take probably a couple hundred thousand years for all that ice in Antarctica. But the inertia has helped us. On the other hand, that inertia translates to momentum. Um, so, and the momentum in sea level rise is very, it's very hard to imagine how that could possibly be reversed. I don't, don't see how it can, both by thermal expansion and by the slow melting of Greenland and Antarctic uh, ice gaps. So, um, anyway, uh, CO2 has also partially acidified the ocean. That's another effect. But the big effect in terms of human impacts, and I think we need to realize it, is that sea levels are going to rise. Ice is going to melt uh, unless we do something uh, about it. And I never talk about what it is we ought to do. That's that's up to the policymakers and the economists and, and such. I don't claim to have that expertise, but here's the science, and this is what the science tells us, and it's pretty much irrefutable. You talk about environmental grief in your book. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, that's also has come from, um, I've heard so much by teaching. You know, teaching is one of the most um, challenging and enlightening things you can do. There's nothing like facing a room full of bright young students who are going to ask questions you never even thought of. <laughs> uh, and um, <clears throat> so that's made me question how science has helped. And one of the things I do, especially in the introductory environmental science class, is the last class is about uh, solved or not. So what are environmental issues that good science has helped us to at least partially solve? And there's lots of them. There's no lead in paint or gasoline. The acid rain deposition is down by 80%. Um, the ozone hole seems to be <clears throat> recovering. Um, so there's lots of, the one big one we haven't solved is climate change, but it doesn't mean we can't solve it. So in fact, that got me thinking about how long it takes 
to have solved these problems. Um, how long did it take to go from the recognition of acid rain to the policy steps that caused the reduction in the emissions of sulfur dioxide that were causing acid rain? Um, and that led the parallels with the psychological concept, the psychology concept of, of grief and the stages of grief uh, seemed just a good vehicle and a way to kind of summarize that for me. So they're, they're different, of course, than they would be for, for psychological um, studies. Uh, but I've summarized it as discovery or recognition of the problem and then denial and anger stages, um, understanding and action resolution. So um, climate change, you know, it's been known and predicted for decades. Um, through the IPCC process, who I get to talk about, there's been, you know, a tremendous scientific um, consensus, although presented in a hugely dense and understand, hard to understand way. Um, so recognized for a long time, understanding is to the point where we know what the subject is like we knew that acid rain was called by sulfur, sulfur dioxide. We know the ozone hole was caused by chlorofluorocarbons. Now, what are we going to do about it? So along the way, there's almost always the denial and anger stage where those who will be affected by whatever decisions are made try to deny that the thing is happening. You know, it happened with acid rain, it happened with smoking, it happened with, you know, any you know, seat belts, you name it, you know. It's not like everyone says, oh, gosh, the science is so good. Let's do it. You know, that stage is, well, yeah, anyway, that's and there's nothing in the book that helps with those stages, but they're there and they've played out in all the major issues. So um, and then understanding and so it's discovery, denial and anger, understanding where we know what's what's happening, and then action and resolution. So uh, while I put them in that order, it's kind of interesting with climate change because recognition and understanding are complete, but there's still a fair bit of denial and anger out there in the topic, in the discussion about climate change and what we should do about it. Um, and action resolution, there's been some, you know, uh, I wouldn't say resolution, but certainly the world has, is trying to reorganize its energy system and, and do other things to minimize greenhouse gases um but it's a work in progress is that sure okay? does that make so sense you think uh, we are at overlapping stages of environmental grief when it comes to climate change <laughs> yeah the understanding is certainly clear but that doesn't mean that we've overcome denial and anger <laughs> <laughs> so why do you think that is the case why why are we still debating uh, the existence of climate change, even if the, the science is quite clear. You know, that gets into topics that on which I am not an expert. And that's politics, that's psychology, that's culture. Um, I th probably behind a lot of it is that there are major economic forces at play. You know, I mean, the fossil fuel industry is huge. Um, but there's no way really for me to address that question without crossing the divide into the political and policy areas. And um, I've been asked to do that many times, of course. And I have an answer to that, which uh, I heard expressed very clearly by a colleague named Larry Mayer, who is uh, head of an ocean mapping group here at UNH. 
he gave a talk and someone said, you know so much about the oceans. Why aren't you in Washington telling us what we should do about the oceans? And he said, as soon as I do that, I lose credibility as a scientist. And sadly, I agree with that. And that frames this book. And that's why there is no politics or policy in here. Um, you can take what's there in the science and, and you could spin it into policy in any number of ways. But the thing I would resist and hope the book helps to establish is um, you can't deny the science. <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson has a great quote. Yeah, it sounds like maybe you know it. It says, um, the good thing about science is it's true whether you believe it or not. Um, you know, and I always, in my office, I was in administration for a while too, and this was useful at that time. I always had a sign on my on my on my desk that said, um, "Perception is not reality." Of course, you know the the media wise ideas is perception is reality. You control perception, you control reality. That's not true. And the corollary to that for me was always: the farther our perceptions are from reality, the more trouble we're in. Um, so. You know, that's that's what science and, and I think as a scientist, my role is to try to make the science very clear without spinning it in any one direction or another. Even the current circumstances and the policy making to to alter the climate change or lack thereof, um, where are we headed? What's our climate future? Well, it's again chapter 12 in the book is about that and it draws heavily on the ipcc reports so maybe we should talk about that for a little bit the ipcc is the intergovernmental panel on climate change it was established in 1988 by the un it has uh put together on five to seven year intervals uh increasingly comprehensive and complex um understanding of the climate science what's uh, how the climate system works how the atmosphere is changing why it's changing and where we're headed um the last version of their report goes to thousands of pages and it's really totally opaque to anyone who's not an expert in the field um they do have a summary for policymakers and that's geared towards policymakers who also know an awful lot about so it's not a draw on that and then try to interpret it in chapter 12. <clears throat> For all of its shortcomings in that sense, I think it is an incredibly accurate and complete summary of a topic uh, of a type that I've never seen before in environmental science. There were some reports in acid rain and the ozone hole and such, but they weren't produced over a 30-year period in six iterations by 2,000 scientists. So um, you hear dismissal of the IPCC reports, and sadly, I suppose it's not. Those gain traction because they're so hard to digest. But they do represent um, the consensus built over 30 years by more than 2,000 scientists. Um, you know, and scientists don't agree about, scientists never agree about everything. Um, and they never will. You know, there's always questions, but the outline, the major outlines and the major summaries are very, are very clear. So what they tell us um, is major findings. Uh, climate change is happening. Uh, and it took them 20 years to come to that conclusion, to say that it was inconclusively, it was conclusively true that climate change is happening. 
Um, so it wasn't a rushed process. It wasn't exactly in the first couple of rounds of statements out of the IPCC were, you know, there's like a 75% chance that there might be an increase in temperature of two to, you know, one to two degrees over a period of 50. You know, it's not exactly blazing headlines kind of stuff, um, which well, there's, there's, I think, reasons for why it developed that way. In the end, though, it produces and produced very conclusive outcomes. What those outcomes are is that climate will change everywhere. Um, temperature will increase globally. Uh, increases will be greater at the poles. Uh, sea level will rise. There are no scenarios or thoughts. There's nothing out there that says sea level is not going to rise. Um, this long-term momentum that we've created in the ocean system as it warms, um, and as that warmth is through currents distributed through the water column, even at depth, we get even more um, expansion of the water column, um, ice will melt. How fast is maybe a little less certain than uh, than the ocean expansion through warming, but uh, there is nothing that says that the amount of ice in Greenland or Antarctica is going to increase. It's going to be slow. So I put out one essay where I had indicators that I think we should follow over time in terms of how we're doing on climate, and really they all change in an annual time step. You know, so weather happens today and tomorrow, and, and there's always stories. So here we have a big hurricane, Ian in Florida. Was that a climate change event? There's no way to say conclusively that it is. And yet there are organizations and scientific groups that study the cumulative energy in hurricanes in the Atlantic. And that total energy in hurricanes is going up. Whether or not it hits Florida, you know, is a chance occurrence. To say, well, that's an aside. Um, so that's where we're headed. See, and I think honestly, sea level rise uh, given how many people live close to sea level, uh, is going to be the biggest. I mean, whether or not there's ice in Antarctica doesn't matter to a whole lot of people. But when that ice turns into seawater and, and the oceans rise, it matters to everybody. Uh, there are I did one essay on four cities that have actually taken steps to uh, resist sea level rise. St. Petersburg being one of them, which was interesting. I didn't know about Venice, of course. And then two Dutch cities, not surprisingly, um, that have built gates and flotillas and, and things that are going to, you know, whenever there's a surge, they come into play and they minimize flood damage and, and they'll help over time. A hundred years from now, they probably won't help that much. There was a $35 billion proposal to build storm resistant barriers across New York Harbor, way too expensive. Well, Florida just asked for that amount of money to repair the damage from Ian. So we haven't yet realized just how serious sea level rise is going to be. You add to that, you know, it's it's harder to say, you know, storm intensity is going to increase. If storms are so, um, they're, they're hit or miss, depends where they are. Um, you can have a bad year. No one predicted last year's winter in California. Um Anyway, so there's we can talk about oscillations in a bit, if you like, because I think that's where where some of the uncertainty arises. But in the long term, you know, and I think we shouldn't concentrate on 2030 in terms of climate change. We should not really concentrate on 2050. 
my grandkids are going to see 2100 and the world is going to be very different, especially along the coast in 2100. We need to think about that. Yes, definitely. Um, you mentioned oscillations. Could you expand on that? Sure. This was really one of the most fun parts of this. You know, this whole thing has been fun for me because I just love the understanding complicated scientific questions and trying to translate that into something that hopefully somebody else will also find fascinating and understandable. I mean, that's um, my, for all that I've done in academia, my favorite part has always been teaching and especially teaching uh, introductory classes uh, where, um, you know, it's all new to students uh, and they ask great questions. And, and anyway, it's, it's so much fun. So um, between weather prediction, so we can do this pretty accurately for five, seven, 10 days, whatever, uh, based on known physics of the atmosphere and this hugely complicated system for, um, uh, for collecting the information to run the models. And then it's really clear with constraints that we've just talked about in terms of oceans and, and ice, where the climate system is headed 40, 50, 100 years from now, you know, unless we do something different. In between, there are all these oscillations, and I think they really cloud the climate change picture because they cause weather to be very different year to year. The classic one is El Nino. Most people know about El Nino. Uh, there have been four major El Ninos uh, in the last 50 years, um, and largely known because El Ninos have historically been associated with extreme storminess in Southern California, the California coast. Didn't happen last year, and there's a whole story about that that's kind of interesting. But um, so we showed actually using um, Arrhenius's approach to predicting weather and the existing temperature data that when you have an El Nino, which means the Central Pacific is warmer than usual, global temperatures go up on average. When you have a La Nina, which means it's cooler in the Central Pacific, it's such a vast area and the temperature, the heat content is so huge that a little change in a couple of degrees across that vast area affects global temperature on average and lots of details about how the temperature and weather get distributed. Um, so that makes it difficult to say this year was warmer than last year. Okay. This year might not be warmer than last year. So the two decade trend is unavoidable. The temperatures are going up, but then there's these oscillations. And then you get something like what happened in California this year, which is a different oscillation that had not been in place for decades. Um, and why that happens is pretty interesting. Um, uh, and then the focus is on, well, you know, you said it was going to be getting warmer and they had this really super cold winter with all this snow. So, you know, I'd, the classic thing was one time a congressman took a snowball from the lawn in front of the you know Congress in Washington, D.C. and brought it into the hall and said, how can climate change be real? It just snowed in Washington. That kind of thing. You know, it's uh, anecdotes and short term events. And so we need to. Uh, focus on the long-term events. But the oscillations are fascinating because we don't know how to predict them. Nobody predicted what happened in California this year. There's a reason why it happened, and maybe next time we'll be able to predict it, but it wasn't anything we know. No one can predict when El Ninos are going to happen. We just went through a three-year La Nina period, which had never happened before. Um, and then there's 
well, polar vortex is another one that it gets our attention. That's another us. Anyway, there's all of these oscillations that cause the analogy I use in the book. You know that game that uh, you play at school or maybe even at uh, a corporate <clears throat> uh, building techniques and stuff. You have a big parachute. You know, a big parachute, round big, par big parachute, and you have twenty people sitting around the outside of this parachute thing, and they wave their corner up and down. And you know, the parachute gets all these wrinkles and wobbles, and you know, it's really kind of fun, blah blah blah. So, if the average height <laughs> of the parachute is global temperature, and all those people shaking the the parachutes are, are oscillations, it's very hard to tell just exactly how tall on average that parachute is um and that's what oscillations do they 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 cloud the trend but they're fascinating and they're really important to know i mean it'd be nice to know if california is ever going to get another kind of snow dumping they got this year we'd like we'd like to know in advance if we can anyway and what about that's oscillations um tipping points so that's a very different that is sort of the opposite so while oscillations are this up and down on the parachute of temperature, you know, shaken by different parts of the system. And there are oscillations that occur in almost every oceanic part of the global climate system. Tipping points are places where once you cross them, there's no going back. I'm a bit of a skeptic on tipping points because I think often the the idea has been used as a way of saying, well, it's okay so far, but next year we're going over the edge and, you know, everything's going to go to pot. Um, so that's damaged the credibility about tipping points. Um, if I had to pick a possible tipping point or an area where rapid change uh, would seem to be possible and that, that would be the gulf stream okay so what we were talking about before about how the climate of green has changed rapidly over short periods of time and how that might be linked to changes in the gulf stream and how, how much tropical warmth that stream delivers to uh, northern europe and greenland and and all of that um, it appears that there are times when that's broken down um, if that happened there would be rapid changes in the climate in Northern Europe. Um, but it has happened and it has recovered. So maybe it's a cycle. Maybe it's a long-term cycle. So I tend, but of course, those are electrifying moments. You know, suddenly, <clears throat> I don't know, there'll be 12 hurricanes a year in Florida or something, you know, because we've reached a tipping point. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, the long-term trends are clear. But, you know, you get into uh, talking about statistics and you tend to lose people. So, you know, Ian was not a once in a 500 year storm. It was once in a 30 to 80 year storm. So we should be ready for the next one. It's not like we can dismiss this whole thing. But that's statistics, you know. That doesn't grab headlines the way the kind of suffering that Ian caused uh, creates headlines. So I think we're much better at responding to crises than we are at preventing them. Preventing them is kind of boring, really. Um, and yet, I think it's the responsible way to go. So I don't know. Is that tipping points? I think um, there there's some possibilities, um, but I think the, the the topic maybe is a little overplayed. All right. 
So a very simple question. Is there any hope in us to alleviate the effects of the climate change, yes. in your opinion? Definitely. And this is why I have in that last session in my class to under a freshman in environmental science, last one is problem solved or not, because we've solved many problems. There's no reason to think we can't solve this one. And some have had huge resistance to their solutions. You know, acid rain, this electric power industry was not on board uh, initially. And But good things happen by good interactions between the you know, industry and academia. And so good things can happen. It's tougher because it's global. Acid rain was regional. Um, the ozone hole, it was global, but uh, it was a relatively easy solution in terms of science and, and what had to be done. Um, so it's going to be more difficult. One of the things that I've done in several of the essays that I've written is say, we've got more than enough solar energy to run the world. We just don't tap it. So here's a here's a mind-blowing number. Uh, 1% of the land area of the U.S. would be enough to generate enough electricity to power the entire United States energy system, not just for electricity, but for everything. I mean, that's a rough calculation, but the number itself is astounding enough that I'm off, if it's off by 50%, <laughs> it's still astounding. Um, and there's lots of logistics about how you move electricity around and all that kind of stuff. But the solution is there um, if we want it. Um, but, and why we don't want it, it's beyond the scope of my book. <laughs> well, but let's stick to the hope uh, <laughs> and let's work towards a the better future, let's say. So let's finish on a lighter note. Um, which discoveries surprised you the most as you were uh, putting together this book? Yeah, there were several. Um, one very topical one, and we can start with uh, the discovery of CO2 as a greenhouse gas, always associated with John Tyndall. Um, there was actually uh, a woman scientist named Eunice Foote who said it two years before he did which was kind of a nice surprise. It was brought to light by a reviewer of the book and a classic and kind of the underestimation of the role of women in science all the way back to the beginning. So that was a nice surprise. The whole um, Arrhenius calculation and how accurate he was, total surprise. The topics that he covered, and they're covered in the book too. He knew so much about earth system science in 1908. Um, that's just astounding, you know. Why are we even? Well, anyway, we know all this. We've known it a long time. Said that more than once. Um, so uh, that was a surprise for sure. Um, let's see how accurate. So, so we've uh, published an article uh, two years ago where we took Arrhenius's formulation of the relationship between CO two and temperature, and applied it to uh, the actual measured temperature. Uh, from the GISS um, <clears throat> global temperature, uh, excuse me, global temperature data set, and uh, it was incredibly accurate. It was so accurate that you could pick out the secondary effect of El Nino on the interannual change in temperature. So, once again, it's simple. <laughs> I guess that's a kind of an overarching 
theme of the book is that sure that I mean the science is it's not complicated relative to other forms of science and I think that's kind of an issue because I think sometimes people who do weather feel like you know it's not space science and so we have to try to make it more scientific than it needs to be anyway um so it, it is very clear what uh is happening but that 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 and the fact that there's a, a thing called the equilibrium carbon sensitivity to climate which is the uh, estimated impact of global temperature on global temperature of a doubling of co2 concentration that number has not changed significantly in a hundred years. And it's been estimated by any number of scientists from any number of points of view. Um, so again, we've, the overall surprise that I had no idea about, because I was so tied to what's happening now in terms of weather and climate, <clears throat> that I was totally unaware that we've known most of the important stuff for a very long time. <laughs> I guess that's the big <laughs> Yes, I was also surprised yeah. to read about yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been a fascinating discussion. And um, what do you currently work on? What's your next project? A series of essays on Substack, which is a platform <clears throat> for essays, which I like very much. And I put out another one every, every second week. And they build on what's in the book. Uh, I think mostly subscribers are people who have a level of understanding about weather and climate uh, that makes some interesting. But it's it's it takes current events. Um, so there's one there trying to explain what happened in California this year. Why did the polar vortex break down? You know, things like that. So they're very current um, stories that build on what we know about weather and climate that's captured in the book. So that's really fun. We have a, a moderate following, and that's I had no idea that would happen. Has the same title, um, less heat, more light, um, same goal. So that's fun. But you know, I'm thinking about another book, and if I was going to do another book, and I haven't approached any publishers about this yet, it would be on oscillations because you know what this book says is we understand short-term weather, we know where we're headed in terms of long-term climate. What are these oscillations? Why don't we know them better? Why can't we predict them? What is it about them that makes them so fast? Anyway, that's, I don't know, that might be next. Well, I would <laughs> love to read that as well. And uh, <laughs> last question, where could our listeners find um, more information about your book, Less Heat, More Light? Uh, well, let's see. Um, it's on the Yale University Press website. Uh, and it's also on um, all the major book selling sites, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all that kind of stuff. So it's actually not released uh, for shipment until June 13th. So I'm not sure when this podcast will come out. <laughs> but maybe it'll be about, about Hopefully that before time. that. Um, okay. Then <laughs> <laughs> um, all that can be edited out, I'm sure. So uh yeah, that that's those are I think the best places to look. Uh, I think I might put up a Wikipedia page on the book uh, that would, but but you know all of those sites will give you the chapter headings and you know summaries and also some comments about the book by the people who reviewed it along the way. So great. Well, many thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks very much for arranging this and for asking. Um, enjoyed the conversation and uh, I hope it'll be of interest. <laughs>